This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Now, I've, uh, you've noticed this gentleman sitting here, no doubt. You wonder who he is. This is uh, Greg Anderson, Bishop Greg Anderson, who's the Bishop of the Northern Territory. And uh, he's going to preach for us in a minute, but I thought I might ask him some questions. Perhaps you could welcome him as he comes to the lecture. Yeah. Um, now, the thing about Greg is that we used to be next-door neighbours. In fact, for about five years we lived uh, as we were both teaching at Moore College, so we know each other and our families know each other very well. And seven years ago, we both ran the Sydney Marathon. When, when we say ran, uh, I finished it. Greg certainly beat me by about half an hour because I walked part of it. Um, thank you for reminding me of that, Greg. Um, but Greg has now gone on to do something even harder than running a marathon, and that is to be the Bishop of the Northern Territory. Can you tell us what it's like to be the Anglican Bishop of the Northern Territory? What's it like to be an Anglican in the Northern Territory? Well, first of all, it's great because the Northern Territory is an incredibly fantastic place, and I hope you all go there. In fact, if some of you would like to move there, that would be great too, because we can do with people who love God and know their Bibles, and actually the opportunities for being involved in churches are enormous. Um, we, we take for granted a whole lot of stuff in a place like St Mark's Darling Point. There'll be somebody to organise the picnic, there'll be somebody to do the food. We can't take those things for granted in the Territory at all, and just to have people turning up as public servants or doctors or teachers or nurses or engineers or pilots, whatever it is, um, who are Christians, really helps our churches a lot. And the real estate prices are oh, pretty well, good, right? Well, yeah, the, yeah, they're better than the eastern suburbs. Um, <laughs> but it is a rising market, so now's probably the time to buy. Okay. Um, and uh, the other part of the territory is that although it's geographically big, its population is tiny. So did you know that the territory's total population is less than 1%? less than 1% of the whole Australian population. The population density of most of the Territory, including the entire parish of Tennant Creek, uh, rounded to two decimal places, is 0, 0.00 people per square kilometre. You have to get to the fourth decimal place before you get a non-zero figure. So and half of, more than half of the total Territory population are in Darwin, so it means that everywhere else is very, very, very scattered and isolated. That, of course, has big consequences for ministry, and one of the things that uh, one of the things that's really significant in the territory overall is the very high proportion of Aboriginal people. So more than a quarter of our population is Aboriginal, and uh, the kind of Aboriginal people that we have are mostly people whose culture is intact people who speak their own languages rather than English at home, people who don't call elders auntie and uncle, but what the exact kinship term is for each individual person, mother's uncle or paternal grandfather or wife's sister or you know whatever it is. So the culture is still very much intact. And uh, in the Diocese of the Northern Territory, we have six Aboriginal parishes out in the bush, out in Arnhem Land, and they're very fragile, and what those churches want, and a small number have, is an outsider living there to encourage the local leadership 
to resource them, to stand with them. And you haven't asked me, so just in case you're going to, I'll just answer as though you were asking me this. Why am I even here? Why, why are you even here? Um, I'm here with a group called Friends of the Outback, began as the Ladies Auxiliary of the Bush Brotherhood, if that means anything to you. Um, every third year they fundraise for a particular project for the Northern Territory, and the project for this year is refurbishing a house that some new missionaries have moved into in the Aboriginal community of Gumbalanya, Matt and Lisa Pearson. Where, so, where in the Northern Territory is that? Uh, it's just east of Kakadu National Park, so uh, the, the very western edge of Arnhem Land. It's a population of about a 1,000 Aboriginal people. Most of the services are run by white people, the school, the clinic, the shop, uh, the art centre, uh, the outstation resource centre, um, but the church is run by a local Aboriginal priest, uh, Lois Nodomedic. But she's tired, she really is asking for support, and Matt and Lisa Pearson had offered themselves to come to the Territory to work as church supporters. And the, the house that they're living in was very run down, it's needed $80,000 worth of work to really make it livable. And so Friends of the Outback have offered to contribute towards those costs. So I'm hoping that perhaps next week your pew sheet might put the banking details of Friends of the Outback so if people wanted to support our ministry by helping refurbish that house, that would be true. And it would be in the weekly catch-up email during the week Good. as well. Great, thanks. Uh-huh. And so um, anything else about uh, your, your particular work uh, that you can tell us? Um, uh, I know there's a, a college that tries to train... Aboriginal people in Christian ministry as well? That's a very important college. Um, Google it, nungalinya, nungalinya.edu.au. So remember that spelling? <laughs> Ask the church office, they'll be able to help you. If, you. if you got the spelling wrong, probably it would still come up on Google. Uh, my wife teaches there, so it's an Aboriginal and Islander church leader training college. The literacy situation of many remote area Aboriginal people is such that when, when students come to the college, they have to do a Certificate 1 in English Literacy before they can go on to the Theology and Ministry courses. And almost all students need that boosting. So that gives you something of a picture of, of the student demographic. They come for residential blocks for between three and four weeks, um, once or twice a year. Uh, they have a great time being there with other Aboriginal people from all over the Northern Territory and sometimes outside the Territory as well. Um, and uh, the, the staff are well qualified in ESL kinds of things as well as in theology. So the students have a really uh, happy time and yet they go back to situations that are still very fragile, very fragile. Um, Overall in the Territory, we have less than a quarter of 1% of the population attending Anglican churches on Sundays, and no better than that in the Aboriginal community. So in a community of about a 1,000, you probably get a dozen people in church or less on a Sunday. So it's very, very fragile. They, the, the people who come to Noongalinga really enjoy the boost that they get from being there. There's lots of us to pray for, and uh, no doubt uh, if you speak to Greg at Morning Tea, he'll be... Um taking your details and finding you a house to live in uh, if you'd like to I'll move there. I will do that. I will do um, that. But, and I'm very... I'll, yeah. I'm easy to find. The website is ntanglican.org.au. 
and I'm bishop at ntanglican.org.au, and I have to I have to race off actually soon after morning tea begins because it's my daughter's twenty first birthday, uh-huh. and with lunch with her grandparents, and uh, there's track work, so for me to get to Thornley is okay. a little bit complicated. Well, we better get you into the pulpit. Sure. Thanks, Greg. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 8, so why don't we pray before we do that? Loving God, we thank you that you haven't left us in the dark. You've spoken to us so clearly that your word has become incarnate and lived among us. And we pray that this morning as we look at this passage, 1 Corinthians 8, that your spirit will teach us and shape us for your purposes for us and through us in the world, for Jesus' sake. Amen. The relationship between our Christian faith and the culture of the society around us can be quite a tricky thing, don't you think? How much should we go along with the culture around us? How much should we stand against it and do our own thing? When I was a child growing up in an Anglican church in the western suburbs of Sydney, I think the vibe was more about standing out as different from the culture uh, around us. Uh, I remember um, that women, for example, didn't wear makeup to church. Lipstick was okay. Lipstick was okay. But I remember being in a shop with my mother one day and there was a woman not wearing lipstick and my mother said, this is in the 60s, you understand, my mother said, oh, she's probably a Baptist. (laughs) My, My godmother had grown up in an Anglican church in Western Sydney And she told me stories about her generation as young adults, um, the things that were off the list. You didn't participate in sport on a Sunday. You wouldn't play cards. You wouldn't go dancing. You wouldn't uh, go to the cinema. And I remember, you'll scarcely believe this, I remember as a teenager in the 70s being taught that drums were an inappropriate instrument for Christian worship because they evoked, and this, I still remember the quote, it burns in my head, they evoked the deep, dark sounds of jungle Africa. (laughs) Ironic that today, um, at least southern Africa is probably the most Christian place on earth. Um, If we'd known in the West that Anglicans in the eastern suburbs in the North Shore drank wine and wore makeup, we would have had very grave fears for their salvation. Happily, we didn't know anything about those other parts of Sydney. These days, the vibe seems to be very different. It's be as close as you can to the culture of the society around you as long as you don't cross a certain line. What we don't want to do, we say, is to put artificial and unhelpful barriers in the way of people who might be inquiring about Christian faith or who might want to become Christians people who want to um, acknowledge that Jesus is king. And then I heard, oh, Sir Mark's darling point, is it okay to see king here, or, or should I say revolutionary president or something like that? Just don't know the Wentworth vibe. They're worried that if we're too different, um, we'll put people off following Jesus. So new church buildings these days, for example, tend to look, they're constructed architecturally like rock concert 
uh, arenas with a stage out the front and usually instruments are left there and a church like St Mark's with the stone columns, it just seems hopelessly anachronistic, wouldn't you say? People who um, would prefer to live in an English village or something like that. And I've been to churches that don't just have one screen for the data projector, but multi-screens, as though they're a motivational conference venue. Not to mention coffee. What if um, instant coffee at Moynty really was off-putting for people? What if it really was important to have a coffee machine and baristas, as many churches these days say? So the relationship between being a Christian and the culture of the society around us is a tricky thing. And actually, it's not just with those outside the church, but there are cultural differences inside the church, and that's tricky too. What are we to do? In the Diocese of the Northern Territory, we have as great a cultural diversity as exists anywhere on the planet. I think there is no greater cultural distance in the world than between somebody like me and somebody like the Reverend Yorkie Nogamach who's our priest in charge in the parish of Owen Pelly. Uh, in the parish of Numbawa on the east coast of the Northern Territory. Now, you may know, if you've been here over the last few weeks, that at St Mark's you've been looking at Paul's, what we call, first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. And in the chapter that we're looking at today, chapter 8, uh, he's addressing this question of cultural, cultural matters. What are Christians to do with regard to the culture of the society around them and even cultural differences that exist within the church. So the particular issue that Paul addresses is food sacrifice to idols. And we think, well, that's really got nothing. Let's, let's move on to chapter 9 or chapter 10. Um, although I might say I was being told only in the last month by a woman in Darwin that the issue of food offered to idols was in her life every day because one of her colleagues at work was from a Buddhist-slash-Taoist background and every lunch that she brought to work had food in it that had been offered in veneration to her ancestors the day before. And so my friend said, well, should she be, if she becomes a Christian, should she be eating that food or not? But for the particular situation that Paul was addressing to the, to the Corinthians, this was the situation. Um, if you went to the butcher, if you weren't vegan or vegetarian, you went to the butcher, all the meat that would be available for purchase had been offered as a sacrifice already to one of the Greek gods in one of the temples in Corinth, to Zeus or Hermes or Aphrodite or Ares, one of the pantheon. That was the way the food supply worked. The animal was offered as a sacrifice in worship. Some of the food would have been burnt up, but the rest of it made its way to the butcher's shop and it was available for people to eat. Since the animal had been offered in pagan worship, was it okay for Christians to eat it or did it compromise their Christian discipleship as though they were somehow worshipping that Greek god as well? Now, I think most of us, apart from my friend's colleague at work, most of us don't face that particular issue. But the kinds of things that I was talking about before, our stand with regard to the culture of the society around us, what are we to do as Christians? 
if you're an Aboriginal Christian in the Northern Territory, is it okay to take part in traditional ceremonies? Is it okay not to take part but to go and watch? Um, is it okay or not okay to speak to people with whom you're in a taboo relationship, like your wife's mother and uncles? And of course, it's not just Aboriginal people in the Territory. Uh, it's true for all of us as well. What's going on even within our own church family? If you came to the 8 o'clock service, uh, if the choir's here, you'll see the choir turn and face east for the creed. You'll see some people making the sign of the cross at parts of the service. In other churches, you see other people go, you know, doing other things that might be different from what you do. Is that okay? Do you just live and let live, or where do we draw the line? I was here at the 8 o'clock service. Um, we had hymns with an organ. Uh, I used to teach at Moore College, and I had a student who, when we were talking about church music, um, indicated to me that he had a visceral, a completely visceral gut reaction against the sound of a pipe organ because for him it evoked idolatrous religion, formalistic, external religiosity that drove out true relationship with God. He just hated the sound of a pipe organ. And maybe I, because of my teenage upbringing, feel the same about drums, um, not just because they evoke the deep, dark sound of jungle, Africa, whatever that means, um, but because I'm something of a musician and they assault my senses every second, multiple auditory stimuli distracting me from the words. So what help does Paul provide for us in 1 Corinthians 8 about these kinds of dilemmas? Well, three key truths, three key truths from chapter 8, and these aren't the whole story because he's still talking about this issue in chapter 9 and chapter 10. In chapter 9, I hope you'll come back next week if you can. Chapter 9, Paul gives his own example of being an apostle as evidence in this debate. And then in chapter 10, he looks at a situation which is something of a flip side to what he talks about, about the food sacrifice to idols in chapter 8. So stay tuned. But in chapter 8, I think we can see these three key truths. First of all, the gospel of Jesus is at the heart of the matter. The gospel of Jesus is at the heart of the matter. Second, knowledge is important, but it's trumped by love. And third, we must act in love towards others, even at the cost of our own rights, as we think of them. So let me say a bit more about those three things. The gospel of Jesus is at the heart of the matter. In Paul's letters, he never just says, do this because I'm telling you. He always gives a reason for what he's saying. And the reason so often, as here, is to do with the good news of Jesus. So the question isn't just, is it okay to eat meat um, offered, that's been offered in sacrifice to idols? Paul, just give us a yes or no. Is it okay or not? No. Paul answers with working. It's a worked answer. He tells you, why the answer is this. If you've got your Bibles there, you might like to look at verses 4 to 6. He says, we know that there are no idols. You know, you might see a statue, but there, there are no other gods. There is only one true and living God. Um, 
maybe the Greeks worshipped Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite and Ares and all the rest, but they're not real. They're not gods. Offering a sacrifice to a pagan god is actually nothing from that point of view because there's nobody there behind the statue. There's only one true God. But what I want you to see is exactly what Paul says in this background. And here's a key background piece of information. The basic creed of the Jews, as you may know, was this. The basic creed of the Jews, the only ancient people group um, who believed that there was just one true and living God, not a whole bunch of different gods, the basic Jewish creed was, Hear, O Israel, hear the words, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. Lord, God, one. And now what does Paul say? Listen to the words. There is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Lord, God, one. One God the Father and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Do you see how using words like that, he's putting Jesus into the God side of the equation. That Jesus is God. Um, there's only one God, and Jesus is God, as the Father is God. He's one Lord to be worshipped. Um, the news that God has come to the world in Jesus changes everything. It's the most important fact in the whole of the world's history. How you think about meat that's been offered in a, in a pagan temple in Corinth is touched on by the fact that Jesus is God and has come as a human. Because if you treat Zeus or Hermes or Aphrodite or Ares or the rest as gods, you're acting as though Jesus isn't the only true king in God's kingdom. If you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ in ways that will turn them aside from following Jesus, you're sinning against Christ himself, as Paul says in verse 12. The church is being built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and anything that disrupts that foundation is dangerous. So Paul's first key argument, first key truth, isn't be sympathetic with people who are different from you because Christians love diversity and inclusion and the more we're different from each other and yet still get on together, it's beautiful. No. His first key truth is that all our actions and attitudes as Christians must flow from the fact that Jesus is Lord that his eternal God come as a true human. That news of Jesus is the only news that will actually bring liberation to the world. So that's the first, the first key truth, is that it must flow from the gospel of Jesus. Second key truth here is knowledge is important, but it's trumped by love. Who here has been in the Great Hall of the University of Sydney? Some. It's a building which I spent many happy hours as a young adult. And usually when you're there these days, you're looking at what's happening on the dais at the front. It's often a graduation or a concert, something like that. But next time you're there, 
Up the front, if you look towards the ceiling, you'll see two wooden angels on the left and the right, both carrying scrolls written in Latin. And the one on the right-hand side says, Scientia inflat caritas edificat, which means, well, it's quoting 1 Corinthians 8, 2. Knowledge puffs up, scientia, science, inflates, but love, caritas, edificat, builds up, love edifies. The one on the left-hand side says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I kind of wonder if those angels are only still there because their scrolls are in Latin. <laughs> because if they were in English, they might have been removed well before now. It's a great reminder, even at a university, where people place so much value on knowledge. The Corinthians thought they knew a lot, at least some of those in the church. They'd actually, they'd actually got rather conceited about knowing so much. If you keep reading through the letter, you see that. They may even have known that pagan idols were really nothing, that they were free to eat meat that had been slaughtered to pagan idols in pagan worship because there's really only one God. But look at what Paul says in verse 2. If anyone claims to know something, anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. If you think you're so smart, then you don't actually have the kind of knowledge that matters. Paul says a similar thing in chapter 13. If I have all knowledge, if I understand all mysteries, but don't have love, I'm simply a noisy noise. Some of the Corinthian Christians knew that idols were nothing, but some of them didn't know that. Some had come from such a pagan background that they thought that to offer food to a god and then to eat it um, was bad, that they were somehow joining in pagan worship by doing that. Paul describes those people as having weak consciences, but he's not blaming them or accusing all oh, those bad guys with the weak consciences. He's just saying that's the way they are. That's the background that they've come from. And if your knowledge that the false gods are nothing leads those ones astray, leads them to go against their conscience so that they eat meat that they think they shouldn't be eating, well, if you've got your Bible there, look at verse 11. Those people, that person, is destroyed. Destroyed. I don't think Paul's talking about their eternal destiny, but he's saying that to act in ways that cause them to do what they believe is wrong is dangerously weakening their discipleship. It's not building the church up, it's tearing the church down. And Paul says, don't do that. Now, I think a church like St. Mark's and other churches around here place a lot of value on knowledge. You've got your own annual lecture series. Knowledge is important. I'm preaching this sermon because I want you to know stuff about this chapter in the Bible. I hope that we value the important truths about the Christian faith have been handed on from generation to generation, even to us. Christianity becomes a disaster area when it's just, you know, I felt this or I experienced that. I, I had an Aboriginal woman uh, in Arnhemland just a couple of weeks ago who intruded into a, a funeral service that had been prepared and planned. I wasn't there. 
But, but she got up the front at the beginning of the service and the Holy Spirit has told me that I have to leave this service. I didn't think the Holy Spirit had told her that. <coughs> knowledge is important. But knowledge can be used not in good ways. That's Paul's point. We want people to grow in their knowledge. And growth sometimes comes quickly, but more often slowly. And in the meantime, what's so important is that we're acting in love. Um, particularly for those that Paul calls the weaker ones. It's more important to win people than to win arguments. It's more important to disciple people. And that leads to Paul's third point. We must act in love towards others, even at the cost of our own rights. The key verse of the whole chapter in terms of application is verse 9. Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You know stuff, you've got the theological facts, that gives you a kind of authority, a set of rights. But Paul says, make sure that you exercising your knowledge, your rights, your authority, doesn't make somebody else fall over. Now what that means for us can be all kinds of different things, some of which might be in tension with each other. Is it better, for example, not to have alcohol at a church event because there are people who might believe that drinking is wrong, as most Aboriginal Christians in the Territory would, as well as people who have been badly affected by alcohol in their own lives? Or is it good to have alcohol at a church event because we want to show that God gives us every good thing for our enjoyment, to show that God is a God of celebration and not anti-fun? Was my God mother right? Was it better for Christians not to dance? Or is it okay for Christians to dance? Or to play cards? Or to venerate ancestors? To join in a cultural ceremony? In one way, there might be one, more than one answer to any of those questions. Um, when we're thinking about who the weak are, sometimes it could be people on both sides, the stricter ones or the freer ones. But Paul's key point is that we mustn't hold on to what we perceive as our own rights, our own comfort, our dignity. We must be prepared to give it up for the sake of God building his church. That's the way of love. That's the path that Jesus trod in giving up his own rights to serve us weak people. Here's a three-word summary of what I've been talking about. Not eat, pray, love. Jesus, love, others. In this complicated interface of our Christian faith and the culture around us and among us, in all of that complication, it's because Jesus is Lord that we want to grow not just in our knowledge but in our love that our love of God expresses itself by loving others. And the challenge for us isn't to ignore what we know, but to use it for the sake of others coming to know Jesus, that he is Lord, to genuinely seek the good of others, helping them to grasp more of the truth of God's saving purposes 
Jesus, love others. Let's pray. God of love and God of truth, we pray that your Holy Spirit will keep working in us so that we are drawn more to Jesus and so that we're equipped more and more to draw others to him as well. We pray this for his sake, who is our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.